Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm on the board of Team DC. I've played and loved sports my entire life, and I've played with the DC Furies and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC and I'm a diehard sports fan. I've played with many of the Team DC sports member leagues, including the DC GFFL, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, Kara Bowling, and recently the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. And I also do a little drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome, everyone. Lauren Gabe here. It's September 28th, and you're listening to episode 15 of Under the Bleachers. This week, it's Laura's turn to choose our topics. For our discussion of all things queer, she chose Schitt's Creek and its domination of this year's Emmy Awards. For our conversation of all things sports, we'll talk about the end of the MLB regular season. And for the intersection of sports and queer, we'll discuss Facebook's response to an anti-trans athlete ad. After that, we're going to share our interview with Team DC's member club, Lambda Lynx. But first, an update from Team DC. Team DC's Challenge Cup is coming back. This year's event will be October 17th and will be a virtual event on Zoom. Registration is open and you can go to teamdc.rallyup.com backslash Challenge Cup 2 to register. Teams of five will play games like Trivia, Celebrity Name Game, Name That Tune, Charades, and Family Feud, plus solve puzzles and brain teasers for points. The event finale features a virtual escape room competition. The winning team will get their name on the trophy and win a private party for up to 30 people at Pitchers with complimentary food and beverages. You can start earning points for the event as soon as you register. Teams that register by today, September 28th, will earn 25 points toward their event score. If you miss that deadline, registering by October 5th will earn you 15 points toward your event score. You can also earn points by referring other teams to register. For every team that registers and names your team as referring them, you will earn 10 points and they will earn five. And you can buy and sell raffle tickets right from the registration page and earn two points for every $10 you raise. There will also be an additional 25 points awarded to the team that sells the most raffle tickets overall, 15 points for the second most and five points for the third most. Raffle tickets are a dollar each with a minimum purchase of 10 and the raffle prize is four lower level tickets to a mutually agreed upon future Washington Nationals game. Get your team together and register now for this fun event. And if you can't join us, you can support Team DC and get a chance to win a great prize by buying raffle tickets. Event registration and raffle ticket sales can be found at teamdc.rallyup.com backslash challenge cup two. Laura and I will keep bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on your favorite podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And share us with a friend. Okay, let's get started. Here's Laura with our first topic in this week's trip, Under the Bleachers. All right, my topic in the world of all things queer this week is Schitt's Creek. Schitt's Creek has delighted us for six seasons with its last season airing this past year on CBC and Pop TV and coming soon to Netflix for American viewers who don't have access to CBC or Pop TV. 
Schitt's Creek is a quirky comedy created by comedy genius Eugene Levy and his son, Daniel Levy. It's a tale as old as time following filthy rich video store magnate Johnny Rose and his family after they suddenly find themselves broke and are forced to leave their pampered lives to regroup and rebuild their empire from within the rural city limits of their only remaining asset, Schitt's Creek, an armpit of a town they once bought as a joke. The show features the delightful love story of pansexual David Rose and his partner Patrick and has been celebrated as everything that is great about queer TV. The beloved sitcom, which racked up an amazing 15 nominations, took home the first seven awards at the 72nd Annual Emmy Awards last week, making history as the first comedy series to win all four acting Emmys in its category in a single year and the first series to win all seven major awards in a single year. The four Schitt's Creek actors who play the Rose family all won Emmys in their respective categories. Eugene Levy for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series, Catherine O'Hara for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series, Dan Levy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series, and Annie Murphy for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series. Dan Levy also collected the awards for Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series and Outstanding Directing for a Comedy Series. And finally, the show won the biggest comedy award of the night, Outstanding Comedy Series. The show debuted in 2015 and hadn't won a single Emmy before last week's awards. In a week that I definitely needed something to celebrate, celebrating Schitt's Creek has been a delight, and I have fully embraced the love, having started a rewatch back at season one, episode one. And I tell you, I'm still laughing just as hard this time as I did the first time I saw these episodes. So Gabe, just as a check-in, are you a Schitt's Creek fan like me? I am a Schitt's Creek fan, and I have to thank my friend Trent for getting me involved and actually making me sit down and watch it. Uh, <laughs> A couple years late, but I wasn't that late. I at least saw, like, you know, it was at least uh, second, third season, like, where it already passed, where he's like, okay, you need to come and watch this. Yeah, I, um, when the first season was out, well, so I, when the first season came out on Netflix, so, which was, like, a full year after it was out in Canada, um, I tried to watch it, and it took me a couple of times. Like, the first couple of times I watched, like, an episode or two and was like, yeah, I'm not sure if I get this. Like, why do I care about these spoiled rich assholes? And, like, yeah. I didn't really get into it. And then, like, months later, I revisited again and was like, okay. But by, like, the middle of first the first season, I felt like it started hitting its stride. And then once the second season started, I was fully fucking hooked like you're in yeah it's one of these shows that like unlike most shows which i think usually have like a really great first season then kind of get not as great and like progressively worse schitt's creek like i actually think started out a little slow was so great by the beginning of the second season and just got better and better oh yeah i think it like they were a little timid in the very beginning i guess testing it out and then it just got better and better and better the jokes were better and the thing that I love is like reading up on it, like David Levy, he, I mean, they all, they're all, I mean, it's the entire family is in the show, like the entire Levy family's in. So like they know each other and they could play off jokes and do certain things that they know will piss them off. Right. But they well, know that they can do it because they're like filming a TV show. Right. And like in, so you're right. It's father and son who were the creators of the show. Um, 
daughter slash sister acts in the show their mother the mother wife is involved as like a producer or something somehow yeah and then like the other main character who plays the mother slash wife in the show is uh Catherine O'Hara who's been acting with Eugene Levy for a million years Here. right like they've been yeah, doing like television single... together for 40 years <laughs> Yeah, every single like Christopher Guest movie. Yeah, they're so basically they might a couple well work together. Yeah, like they might as well be family too. So it's like the most incredible, like you know, the the bonds between them and the connection and the chemistry. But you know, like you throw in Annie Murphy, who I'm pretty sure they all just met for the first time when she showed up to audition for this show, and she fits right in perfectly too because. <laughs> The characters are written so fucking well and the casting is so amazing. It's just, it's, they're like, it's the best fucking show on television. Oh, it's still very like small town, like Canadian show, but it's very, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing the edges or pushing the boundaries on certain things. You know, they're talking about, you know, what is it like to be, what is it like to be a pansexual character? You have a lesbian character. And the best thing I like is that they're just normal people living in this town. Yeah. And who cares if they're gay? Who cares if they're lesbian? Who cares if they're whatever? They're just living their lives and nobody cares. It's not like that's the plot or that's the issue or that's the main moment of the episode. That's just part of the character and that just adds to them. Yeah, I mean, I and I think it's like in the first season, David's character is presented and I mean, I know I immediately assumed he was gay, just whatever. He seemed like a gay guy didn't matter nobody questioned it or said anything about it or looked at him strange which frankly for like he shows up in this random teeny tiny town in the middle of nowhere where everybody seems to be like a little bit incestuous frankly you think maybe there would be a few turned heads but there doesn't seem to be and then in the middle of season one we get this really amazing arc um with Stevie and David, where Stevie, the female character who plays, you know, a straight female cisgender character who becomes David's best friend as the series goes on. But in the middle of season one, they end up sleeping together and then have this great scene where they talk about it afterwards. And Stevie is kind of questioning um, whether, because they were both high when they had sex the first time, whether that was, you know, a mistake because she had thought that David was gay. And David gives his great analogy about the wine bottles where, you know, I'm she into asked, the label. <laughs> yeah, I love the, I, I just, you know, I like the label, not the wine, which is like what such a great, uh, a great line from television um and that's that's like a really great moment in that show and that show has so many of those great moments um i just rewatched the episode where david and patrick have their first kiss and it was like the sweetest fucking thing i've ever seen and i'm not like a romantic comedy person that's not usually my jam but man the beginning a couple <laughs> of episodes of that love story are some of the sweetest like and just believable uh moments that you ever see like on television like they're so relatable um yeah i don't know if you remember that story like you know those episodes oh yeah because they met like what was it he was who's that guy that's like he does everything in the town he's like the insurance he does like (laughs) ray he's a real estate broker an insurance broker a photographer photographer uh (laughs) what oh he does closet organization (laughs) yes yeah ray Oh, because, yeah, yeah that, that was it, because, uh, what's his face? He was trying to get the, um, 
uh, down payment, I guess, or the to something to fund the store. Yeah, well, so David goes into Ray's office because he needs to fill out an application for a business license. And yeah. that's where he first meets Patrick, who helps him fill out the business license. He's there. He had started working with Ray, and he's renting a room from Ray. But then a few episodes later, um, it's David's birthday, and Patrick takes him out to dinner to celebrate his birthday and then gives him a ride back to the hotel. Oh, yeah. And they're sort of chatting in the car, and it's like this little awkward conversation. And finally, David leans over and kisses him, and he... He looks at David so earnestly and says, thank you. And, you know, David says, for what? And he says, I have never done that. That was the first time I've ever done that with a, with a man. And I was get, starting to get afraid I was going to let you get out of the car without that without happening. Doing. So thanks for making that happen for us. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like I was actually legitimately choked up. Like it was the sweet, it was such a sweet moment and so fun. <laughs> And honestly, so relatable. Like, that's not exactly an experience I've ever had, but I could so f picture myself having an experience like that. And so many people that I know, I think, have had experiences very similar to that. You know, the first time that you start to, like, come to terms with sexual attraction of a person of the same gender, if you're not expecting it, or you, in the back of your head, are, like, a little afraid of it, you know, it, it is, it's a really emotional, and it, like, and can be a really awkward moment. And they were just so damn sweet about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, even like the, uh, you know, the episodes like later on where they're talking about like, you know, Patrick coming out to his family and how they were going to take it. And then just like, just the way that they brought things up. And it was just like so normal, so casual. Like it wasn't, again, like a, a huge like shocker turning point of the episode or whatever. But it was just like, this is their normal lives. This is what they're going through. And yeah. this is, it doesn't, you know, this is what their, their everyday life is in this tiny little town and That's people right. can relate they, to it. They do such a nice job of making everything seem more relatable. You know, you have, you have D David who, you know, is pansexual and has apparently been very um, fluid and, and self-aware since he was a young child. Right. And then you have Patrick who's coming to terms with this in his late twenties or whatever he's supposed to be. And it's, it's two different experiences, but you get to see both of them sort of portrayed in such an honest and like not overly glorified way that it seems very natural. And it feels like it feels real. Right. And then on top of it, you have this ridiculous over the top humor because you've got all these characters doing all these crazy things. I mean, Moira Rose is one of my favorite television characters. And I don't know that anyone other than Catherine O'Hara could have made that character come to life or that you could explain to somebody who hasn't seen Schitt's Creek what Moira is all about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love, to, I'd love to that. It's, you know, it's like one of those stereotypical, like fish out of water type of stories. But you still love them. You still love the characters. You know, they fell on hard times, and it wasn't their fault. Spo like you know, spoiler alert: you learned that in the first episode right. that it was their like their tax guy who screwed them over. So they're not like horrible people. Because there are people like, oh, why do we love them? They're are they supposed to be really bad people? Like that this we're yeah. supposed to be happy that this happened to them? And it's like, no, this it just so happened that they got screwed over because they're a tax guy. Right. They, it uh, was a good, it was a good move for them to like make it that they weren't the white collar criminals. They were the yes. victims of somebody else. But like, of course, like for me anyway, I did have a hard time the first couple episodes. In the I'm first episodes. Yeah. Oiled rotten people. Like I don't see how they're going to make these people remotely relatable <laughs> or remotely sympathetic. I'm not into this, but like, 
they really do such a phenomenal job of writing character development in that show. I mean, by the end of it, you truly see that all four of them have grown tremendously um, as human beings. And the, the people in the town are so welcoming and embrace them all so quickly. And they're also like patient with them you know it's crazy that's the thing too like they they even get you know annoyed sometimes at like their shenanigans and their craziness it's like no you're being stupid and they'll call (laughs) them out on it which i love i love those moments it's it really is such a funny show it's not a quote-unquote gay show but it's got such great queer storylines and such great queer representation i love everything about it it deserves every one of those emmys and more and I'm downright devastated that Schitt's Creek is over. Um, and it, it, it's crazy how, like, it was a very niche show for, like, what, a couple years. People kind of knew about it, but not really. And it wasn't until their final season, or maybe season five, when people really got into it. Like, oh, my God, this, this show is so great. And it's like, oh, this is our final season. I know. It was and we're going to end on a high note. Yeah, it was, it was a sleeper. But I think I want – I. I, I believe that when I started watching is when it hit Netflix. And when it hit Netflix, I think that it was about to start season three. That's when it blew up. Yeah. Right. So I kind of binged the first two seasons and then kind of watched the rest of them as they come out. And I just watched, I watched, you know, the last season on pop TV and the last season is about to hit Netflix next week. So I know some people who still haven't seen the last season and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, just go buy pop <laughs> TV. I don't know how you waited this long. It's wild, but. And the Christmas episode and all these other like extra I know. ones. Well, I just want rewatch my favorite. I think my favorite of the whole series, which is in season two where David and Moira cook dinner together. <laughs> And oh, the fold in the cheese. Yeah, <laughs> they're cooking the enchiladas, and it's just it enchiladas. <laughs> the enchiladas. That's right, because Moira Rose has an unidentifiable accent. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I have to say, if you're one of those last five people who have not yet watched Shit's Creek, there's something you're missing out on a true gem. So go to Netflix immediately and start watching and fall in love with the Rose family because I'm jealous of those people who have yet to, who still get to experience that for the first time. What's going on in the sports world in this wonderful uh, pandemic times? In the bubble that we're living in, I, <laughs> uh, I thought for my sports topic, we could address um, baseball and I hope you didn't blink because the Major League Baseball regular season is over. Uh, It seems like just yesterday we were on this podcast talking about how the MLB was finally coming back after the COVID-related delays, and now with just 60 games in the regular season, baseball is over. This season has not only been short, it has been incredibly weird. For one thing, we have cardboard fans and video game crowd sounds for the games, but another truly weird thing is that these teams have only played 60 games and have played against limited teams with the season being limited to 40 interdivision games and 20 games against the corresponding division in the other league. And on top of that, we are getting an expanded 16-team playoff this year. In the sport that is usually the most stingy with playoff spots, this seems truly bizarre. And a number of the biggest stars aren't even playing, having opted out of the season. So with the playoffs about to begin, is there any way to predict anything at all about how these teams are going to do? 
It is always somewhat true that anything can happen in October, but this year it seems like honestly anything could happen. So the playoffs start tomorrow, and maybe this year the Cleveland Indians will win a World Series for the first time since 1948. Who knows? I'm also left wondering if this season, for all its oddities, was worth it at all. I was totally excited when baseball was coming back, but now the season has flown by. I'm not sure any teams have had a chance to really show their stuff. Players have suffered the emotional and mental tolls of watching their teammates and others get sick around them, many while isolating themselves for safety reasons from their family and loved ones for months. And even with all the safety protocols in place, hundreds of players and team staff contracted COVID-19 in the process. And although a vast majority were asymptomatic or had mild symptoms, that was not the case for everyone. Cardinals pitcher Carlos Martinez, a 29-year-old man, was hospitalized. Phillies utility man Scott Kingery detailed a weeks-long battle with the virus that sapped him physically as the season began, and White Sox infielder Yohan Mancada said he was not the same athletically weeks after recovery. And Red Sox pitcher Eduardo Rodriguez, who tested positive at the start of summer camp, has had his career sidetracked by myocarditis the heart condition for which the long-term effects are unknown for athletes recovering from COVID-19. So Gabe, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts about the end of baseball season? Honestly, I was like, what baseball's over? First off, I was like, I knew there was games going on. I was like, okay, whatever. I was like, oh yeah. I looked at the calendar. I was like, it's almost October. Like, of course baseball's almost over, but it's still insane. Like what? The season finished that fast? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Right. I mean, it's like, kind of hard, too, when we have, like, baseball going on, and you have hockey, and you have the NBA, and they're all hitting the end, and it's like, what? And then, yeah. you know, uh, football, uh, college football starting up, and then regular football or NFL starting up. So it's like, what? I think everything's I just so – we were rushed to get sports going on at the same time that it's just, like, it's too much, and then with everything going on in the world, nobody really knows what's going on. So it's kind of like – I hear oh, yeah. you. We've it feels like it didn't happen, right? Like I watched. No, not, um, not at all. Like I watched the first, like when baseball first was back on TV, like the beginning of their second chance at spring training. I watched a bunch of games at once, and then I only watched a handful of games the rest of the season. Like it would just, it went by so fast. I, it didn't feel like baseball season because I wasn't yeah. going because there were no games to go to. That's the thing. Like that's that's one thing I really miss is like actually going to the stadium and watching a, a game. Yeah. And you know, honestly, like you watch these games and I'm like, okay, so the Cubs are beating everybody in their division. The Yankees are beating everybody in their division. Great. Don't they always do that? Like you don't really know. I mean, without the teams really playing real seasons, it's very hard to judge like who will play well in a seven game series. I mean, it's always kind of hard to judge that, but With the baseball season, you're usually used to seeing them play so many games against so many different teams that you have a you you get to see like a good sense of who really has the goods. And I don't think this year we know, right? Like, I don't know. I to me, I'm like, I guess the Dodgers are gonna do well. But like other than that, it seems like a crapshoot. Like anybody could win the World Series. And then is it gonna really even feel like a World Series? I don't know. (laughs) Everything about this year has been bizarre, but the baseball season feels sort of like some dream that didn't really happen to me. 
Well, and it, like you kind of got to go back. Is like, was it really worth it? Like, do people even did people even realize that baseball was going on? You know, and all these players are getting sick, and all these things. You know, all the side effects or the after effects of recovering from COVID. We still don't know what they're going to do to these people. Yeah, that's right. It's and worth I mean, it. Just like everybody else, right? That nobody knows right now what the long-term health impacts of COVID-19 are. It's not just athletes. It's true for oh, yeah. everybody. But you kind of look at this situation where they all put themselves at this extra risk so that we could have a baseball season. And now I'm like, I don't know, did I even get anything out of this baseball season? <laughs> like, the whole thing just seems really weird. And, you know, there were like over 100 cases that were made public of players, which makes me believe that there probably are multi hundreds of cases of players. And that doesn't even scratch the surface when you think about the, you know, the, the, trainers and the people who are equipment managers and everyone else who probably got sick the well people- even like the the people that are doing the television broadcasting and the people that are like televising the games and all that the producers the engineers everything there's so many people that had to you know cut themselves out of their lives and go into the bubble and do this whole thing and we kind of have to look back like is it really worth it i don't know i mean the whole thing seems bizarre to me i made a comment to someone the other day where I said, you know, it's so weird because it, if, when I think about March, to some extent, it feels like it was a thousand years ago, right? Like every day feels like it's a month during this weird moment in time. But then at the same time, if you mention something to me that happened in March, it feels like that thing happened just yesterday. And I think it's because literally nothing else has happened in between. Like we haven't been able to yeah. do anything. <laughs> so you feel like I'm, and, but like, it's just this weird thing where you feel like at the same time, this has been the longest year in the history of anything. And the year has flown by and how the hell is it October already? I just don't know. And baseball, which is something that's usually such a really fun part of the year and often feels like it takes up a third of the year went by without me even noticing it. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to wrap my head around it. I'm not sure it was worth it for all these people to put themselves at risk. But then when I go back in my head and think about what I was feeling in July and how much like hope and happiness it gave me the idea that baseball was coming back, I wouldn't have wanted to not have that. You know, like it was feeling, I was starting to feel like, real despair at no progress and when all the sports started to come back in july it really did start to feel like things were lightening up a little bit and i think it gave gave a lot of people a lot of things to look forward to so you know i think that's important and i guess like you know baseball was important it just it was like important psychologically but then actually didn't turn out to be something i was really that interested in following i don't know one more thing to just put in the list of like fucking weird things for the year 2020. 2020, this is the weirdest year ever. It's almost done. I know. I, I don't know. Um, do you have any predictions about any of the teams? Are you excited for the Nats? You're a Nats fan, is that right? I am a Nats fan. Uh, I'm kind of like, eh, we'll see. I heard the Dodgers are supposed to be doing well, but we don't know because they haven't really been playing anybody. So it's kind of like, it's no, hard to predict. How are they going to do? From the limited <laughs> baseball that I have watched and read about, I think the one thing we know for sure is that the Dodgers are good. 
The Dodgers are good, yes. <laughs> I think the rest of it is just a big, giant fucking mystery. And when you have like, 16, we don't know. <laughs> it's 16 teams in the playoff, I don't know how you make a, any <laughs> predictions about that. I can tell you the one thing I don't want to see is I don't want to see the Atlanta Braves win a World Series. If the Braves win a World Series, just to cap off the terrible year that is 2020, and I have to see that nonsense, that'll probably drive me right over the edge. All I know is I'm, one, excited that the World Series is going to be played in Arlington. Yay, Texas, as the neutral stadium. Um, but if the Astros make it, I need to, like, make sure that all the trash cans are moved. That <laughs> way they don't cheat again. <laughs> oh, I thought you'd be an Astros fan. I thought that I was an Astros fan I thought fan you'd be from Texas like everything that's from Texas. I was an Astros fan growing up. I was also a Rangers fan, but now I'm a Nats fan. And one of my best friends, she's a huge Astros fan. And so when they were playing against each other, I was just like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And I was like, right. oh, they won? Yeah, they cheated. Let's put a little asterisk on their win because they cheated. <laughs> oh, so bitter. Yeah. I had, a, I had a sign ready, but they stole it, so I couldn't show it. All right. Well, here's <laughs> to baseball playoffs. I maybe we get we're gonna get something special. Who knows? All right. What do you have on the intersection of sports and queer? All right. So finally, this week's topic at the intersection of sports and queer. Let's talk about Facebook's response to an anti-trans athlete ad. The American Principles Project, so aptly named, a conservative <laughs> think tank, has focused in recent years on campaigning against LGBTQ and abortion rights. Last year, they ran anti-trans campaigns in Kentucky during the state's highly contested governor's race, in which the Republican incumbent Matt Bevin narrowly lost to Democrat Andy Bashir. And the American Principles Project is back at it again. Recently, it put up an ad on Facebook. In an obvious distortion of reality, the 38-second ad features a cisgender high school boy racing against cisgender high school girls and beating them handily. The ad specifically takes aim at Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and Michigan Senator Gary Peters for supporting the Equality Act. The ad's voiceover states, quote, all female athletes want is a fair shot at competition, at a scholarship, at a title, at victory. But what if that shot was taken away by a competitor who claims to be a girl but was born a boy? Senator Gary Peters and Joe Biden support legislation that would destroy girls' sports, <laughs> end quote. The sincerity is just a little bit too much for me, Gabe. I, I was blown away by how much these guys suddenly care about women and their, and their uh, athletic endeavors. And now they care. <laughs> yeah. So last week, Facebook pulled the ad down and attached a fact check label on the video if it's shared on the platform organically. In a statement, Facebook stated that it took this action because the ad had been deemed misleading by third party fact checkers, including PolitiFact. According to Facebook's ad library, the American Principles Project spent between $2,000 and $2,500 to run the ad, which was shown entirely in Michigan. The ad has received 60,000 to 70,000 impressions. Terry Schilling, the executive director of the American Principles Project, criticized Facebook for pulling the ad, saying, 
Quote, today, Facebook caved to a pressure campaign by far-left activists, effectively censoring our effort to inform voters about Democrat threats to women's athletics. So, Gabe, I'm sure that um, you're, you're feeling really sad and crying big crocodile tears for American Principles Project, but what do you think about Facebook's response to the bogus ad? Do you think Facebook has finally solved fake news? I I applaud them that they're at least trying to do it. I don't think they're yeah. That, we we can't give them a gold star and say oh you're doing the you're you're being amazing and you're doing what you're doing is like no like no they're, they're doing, doing they're something. doing the bare minimum exactly but, Same, I, you know but it's still uh, yeah I mean I guess we're weird serious. right now I think we should be you know I guess glad they're trying I guess. Yeah, but you know, like they took the ad down. It's already got sixty thousand to seventy thousand impressions in Michigan. Um, it's going to continue to be shared organically, and they're adding a little thing that they call a fact check label. But as we know, people don't typically they don't check those. Bother. They don't. Right, like nobody even clicks on the link to read the article anymore. So they're not going to ever get to the fact check label. So that seems um pretty pointless frankly um yeah i don't know facebook to me like i they just have to get their shit together like facebook is like such a profitable endeavor it's amazing that they refuse to put any more resources into um keeping their into monitoring their fake content and misleading content that's posted all over their site um, just given what we know, which is like there's been proven incredible negative effects on so our society and our political um, process as a result. I mean, there's all this data that shows that there are millions of people who Facebook is their primary news source. They, oh, yeah. they, they identify that they get the majority of their news from Facebook and you've got Facebook out there with absolutely no filters or requirements on what people post and call it news. <laughs> have you it's, seen the social, have you seen the social dilemma? On Netflix? I have not watched that yet. You need to see it. I mean, <laughs> of course it's, you know, it's a little, little bit biased, but like, if they talk just like, like about that, about how like Facebook uses algorithms to make you one, stay on Facebook and keep you looking at videos and stuff like that. But also they kind of like figure out exactly what you're going to click on and right. they figured it out so you can, they can predict what you're doing, but they've learned that, yeah, it, they can affect people like their political views, how they focus on certain things. They can, if uh, let's say you're a big QAnon conspiracy theorist or whatever, and you start clicking and you start joining these groups, well, the algorithm will figure it out and say like, oh, maybe you like this group. So like, oh, I'm a big Pizzagate guy. Well, you might like this or the crazy thing, like the earth is right. flat and all this other stuff going on. And they, they just found out that they can't stop it. They can't oh, that's control the it. Thing. It's like, like it's, they've created this crazy thing. <laughs> the data is out there to show you that it has all these negative impacts. And it's oh, yeah. like, not only is Facebook not making adequate efforts to stop it but we know that their their profit model is actually built on getting clicks and oh, yeah. so they designed their algorithm to give people what they want right 
and what that does is it creates these um, echo chambers for people. You know, you click on X, Y, and Z, Facebook figures out that that's what you're interested in, that's what you're likely to click on. So it keeps filtering you more and more of the similar stuff. And so it becomes this like self-perpetuating problem. And it's wild. But I mean, so again, I'm like, I guess I'm glad that Facebook has made these very minimal efforts that they made this year because it's better than the zero that they did the last time. But people really need to start putting more pressure on Facebook because it's destroying us. <laughs> yeah. On the big giant, like tech companies, you know, well, Facebook now owns Instagram, but you have all these other, you know, Snapchat, Google, all these other, the ones that were testifying on the, on the Hill uh, a couple months ago, it's like, yes, they are definitely need to be regulated on certain things because you don't know like what fake stuff is out there and people it's believe it. Terrifying. And it's really, I mean, I see people post all these Facebook ads, like, you know, the fake, um, and I, I've even done it one time because it's very hard to tell what is right and what is wrong. So I've been, I've been very good now trying to go back at, before I check something and before I post it, is this legit? Is this a reputable source? Is it correct? Because I don't want to be part of the problem where I'll put something up that oh, is hard. totally wrong. And it's really hard. It's, it's hard. Really hard I've definitely made mistakes because you're going quickly and something looks legitimate. I mean, they don't make these things look fake, right? Like the people that are creating them are doing it to mislead people. Oh so yeah. You know, they're, they don't make it look obvious which ones are real and which ones are fake. So it is, it's not that easy if you're going quickly and I, you know, and I'm consciously making the effort and I've made mistakes. So I know that for people who don't try and don't care, like, don't think about this, that probably 80% of what they're sharing is fake <laughs> and it's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, I'll see like, I mean, Facebook did say that they're going to pull all political ban or ads um weeks before the election and well, stuff like no, that. Well, no though, paid ads, right? Paid ads. So yeah. like that's the thing is like these things that start being organically shared um they're not being crazy. paid. Yeah, you're Yeah, just... and it's like those are still going to be everywhere and pushed all over the place and so you have to be really careful. I just it's wild. I um I find it terrifying because for the longest time I had convinced myself that I was like, people don't really believe this. Like they share some of this stuff because they think it's like, sounds good or like it meets the, the like some, some desire they have. Like they don't like Hillary. So they share these negative things about Hillary, but deep down they know it's not true. They're just trying to badmouth somebody they don't like. And I'm no longer sure that that's true. Like I've had conversations with people where I'm like, holy shit, you really believe that, Joe Biden is running a pedophile ring out of oh, his basement. Like they it's really crazy. believe it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and people truly believe this stuff. So you have to. I don't know. I mean, we just have to try to like put pressure on people. I think we have to really start putting pressure on lawmakers um, to come up with a better scheme to regulate these online social media like sites that have become news agencies when we weren't paying attention um well, like i was talking to some of my like some of my family members from back in texas and they're like oh my god i can't believe you're living in dc i'm looking online and isn't it a war zone right now and isn't it like all these people are rioting and looting around dc and it's so horrible to live in and i'm like no i know I someone said that to me on facebook the other day and i was like 
if we had a riot every time we had a protest in this town, this town would have <laughs> burnt down so long ago. What are you talking about? And he's like, they're burning DC every night. And I was like, dude, I live in I DC. live here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm looking out my window right now. We're not on fire. Like, what the fuck? But people truly, they they believe it. Like, they believe real. it because they see like, it. Oh man, we are we are so far past like this being a small problem. We didn't take it seriously, and it is now taking on a life of its own. And it might be too late to dial that shit back, frankly. <laughs> and that's the hard thing because they're like, "Oh my god, there's protests!" Like I was like, "It's DC. There's a protest every day for something." Like literally if you're, every day. If you're left-handed and you're angry about whatever, there's a protest for that. Like every day, there's a protest on something, because we live in the U.S. and we live in the capital. And you know what? Let people protest peacefully. Yeah, and Go this ahead. guy's like, no, no, it's at the White House. I'm like, dude, the White House is less than two miles from my front door. Like, please stop talking. There's, uh, yes, there's always something going on. I was like, they're not burning down the city. Like, I don't know where you're getting your information, but I'm looking at the window and it's totally fine. Yeah, but we have to keep in mind that um, Republicans and conservative think tanks are still using trans people as the boogeyman and they're disgusting and they're willing to focus their ire on high school age athletes who are transgender to and they're doing it to advance an agenda that has nothing to do with protecting high school girls in sports or anything else they're doing it to advance their own craven power grabs and to appeal to to people's fears about things that they don't understand or don't know and you know just I, I the only antidote to any of this honestly is to talk is to keep talking to people keep being visible if you're a trans person just be visible find your people who are going to support and protect you we're out there we have your back and just live your life and be visible and you know do your thing because the only antidote to these messages are to broaden people's horizons and open people's minds by introducing them to things that they don't understand or know about. And that's the hard thing. It's like, yeah, people live out who they truly are. Don't go back in the closet. Don't hide yourself because you're going to prove them right. You need to go out there, live your life and show them like, no, this is me. I'm an average regular person. I'm not the scary unquote person that's going to come and make you liberal and take over your cities and burn and do whatever. It's like, no, this is not who I am. <laughs> that's right. I'm not someone to be afraid of, of. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So it's all we can do. But, you know, when you see shit like this on Facebook, tell people how stupid they are for sharing it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, I want to share with everybody in the last week, I've started liberally using the unfollow feature on Facebook to cut some of these toxic people out of my feed and it has made a big <laughs> difference in my life this week so i want to encourage you to use the unfollow uh button so that you don't have to see everybody's toxic shit all the time all right so that's this week's under the bleachers roundup of things queer things sports and things at the intersection of sports and queer we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to share our interview with team dc member club lambda links and we're back uh, with Under the Bleachers. Welcome back. Today we have the Lambda Links. We have Barbara Lewis and Mike Hongs with us. Um, hi, y'all. How y'all doing? Good. Great. Great. How are you? Doing well. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about the Lambda Links? 
Well, I, I can give you a little history if that's what you'd like. I, I've been with Lambda Links practically since the very beginning, which was in the late 90s, about 96, 97. And it was a group of uh, LG, well, I would say LGB at that time. I think the T was to come later. Um, and we basically formed a group to play golf together, men and women. And we would we would get a, uh, a tea time for about three or four tea times for about 20 people or 24. And we would go and play a course. So it, it developed into a, a league in which not necessarily a competitive league, a social league, but we would play all the different courses around the D.C. area, Montgomery County, Prince George's County, Virginia, and occasionally a D.C. course in that time. And I, I had said this before to, to Mike that um, we, at the time, this was before we had internet connection or computers. So we would fax the tea times to each other back in the late 90s before <laughs> we were able to send stuff out through uh, the internet as we do now. And I'm a more recent arrival. I've only been with the club about, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years now. And when I joined, we were already using email, which was, you know, high tech and amazing, but we hadn't put the website up. Uh, and nowadays we have a website, which makes it easy for everybody to communicate. And when we've got golf outings, people can sign up uh, in their foursomes, pick which time they want to play via the website. And it works much smoother. So in the current iteration of Lambda Links, are you a competitive organization or are you still a social organization? Or Mainly social, yeah. We do have some. So most of our weeks, we play from the beginning of April until the end of October. And most weeks, it's just a friendly getting together and playing golf and we're not in any sort of competition. But we generally do have several tournaments over the course of the year including uh, around the September timeframe, we'll have the club championship. Yeah, and the way we do that, we have little fun tournaments. And so we have a, we have a can, we, we keep our handicap through the Montgomery County handicap system. Now, nobody has to have a handicap to join our group if they don't want to, because we have high handicappers and low handicappers, a, a very wide range of skills. So all we ask generally is that people can play 18 holes and try to follow the etiquette of golf as opposed to having to be really good at golf. So it's really very social, but we have these little fun tournaments like a two-person best ball or a pink ball tournament, uh, a scramble. And at the end of the year, the, the club championship is basically done by the net score, which is handicapped meaning that a high handicapper with who gets a lot of strokes could win just as easy as a low handicapper. So in, in that regard, it's not super competitive. Okay. Yeah. That sounds a lot of fun, like a lot of fun. Um, and I understand you typically play in foursomes. If somebody wants to come out, but they don't have a partner or don't have a foursome, do you guys have a method to match people up? Absolutely. You don't have to be paired with anybody, which is uh, the reason that I got involved with the club. And I think it's really the beauty of this club because uh, we provide you people to play with. If you're interested in coming out, you look at our website and you can register there for an account and just sign yourself up for one of the events in whichever foursome you want to play with. You can talk to the organizer if you want to sort of introduce yourself and say, well, I'm not sure which group I should be signed up with. The organizer can maybe slot you into a group that would uh, that you would enjoy playing with. But in general, we're friendly and we're welcoming to new people. 
And, and initially, uh, if you haven't uh, been, a, we, we have a membership. So it's, it's, right now it's been $40 a year to join. But if you're new and you haven't joined yet, you can register as a guest and perhaps send an email to the coordinator for that day and come in and play as a guest. And then when you've played, if you want to be a part of us, then we you know, ask you to join. And sometimes members will bring guests to see if they you want to want to join the club or just want to come out for a day of golf. Very cool. Now, were you all uh, golfers before you joined, or how did you get involved with the uh, organization? Yeah, I think we're all golfers. We all had to sort of learn to play golf uh, at some point in our life before this. I learned when I was in my I don't know early thirties. Some people have been playing maybe since they were kids. Um, but we don't really do golf instruction. Uh, like Barbara said earlier, we kind of expect that if you want to play with us, you don't have to be a good golfer, but you have to know how to play kind of the etiquette, the rules, the general standards of how you play golf and be able to get along with a group of people and keep up the pace. Um, so you do have to have learned at some point, but beyond that, you don't have to be good at it. Yeah, and you don't actually have to know all the rules of golf. <laughs> right. I don't mean the details. I mean, just sort of, you know, you, you understand what the game is about, basically. Right. You have to yeah, play. The, yeah, the rules of golf can be really uh, complicated, and, and it's supposed to be fun. So you keep your own score, and you compete against yourself, really. And if you want to follow the rules to the tee, good for you. If you don't, as long as you're not competing in a little one of our tournaments, uh, you can play however you want to play. I mean, I played golf. I learned how to play golf when I was a kid, um, and that would be in the 60s. And But as I got into the 70s and the 80s, I played a lot of softball, basketball, tennis, other kinds of sports uh, with other women because I was an out lesbian at the time. And when things started hurting, like my shoulder and my knee, and I couldn't run anymore, and I said, oh, let me go back to golf. So the late 90s is when I got involved, and that's when Lambda Links, Lambda Links actually started, and it was great to uh, get back into golf again. How was uh, the starting of the Lambda Links, and how was DC in the 90s, and uh, you know what brought the group together? Well, I think there was one or two people that decided to start it. I wasn't the original people that started it, but I got in, but I was in there pretty early. And it was just a man and a, and a couple women who actually started it. And they decided they wanted to play together. And they just started sending out, as I always said, faxes. We had to send by fax because we didn't have email and internet in like 96, 97. And it just sort of took off there by word of mouth. I mean, we didn't have any real advertisement. I think maybe we put an ad here or there in the blade you know, in the sort of personal section where we had lots of advertisement in those years before you'd, you could go online. And it just grew from there from word of mouth. It sounds like a really good opportunity for socializing, socializing and also, you know, getting to enjoy an, an activity that you, you, you have a common bond around. Um, does Lambda Links participate regularly in activities other than um, playing golf together that you would want to talk about? I think we've participated in the Team DC Billiard Nights. Yes. We've, we've, we've joined those. And actually, a lot of our members have gone to the Gay Games. I actually went to the Gay Games in 2002 in Sydney, Australia, 
and played played there. And so a lot of our members have done that over the years and come home with medals. So they've gone to Germany and Amsterdam and wherever the gay games, you know, have has been. We've participated. Chicago. Okay, that sounds fun. Um, and for people like me who really don't know anything about golf, um, tell us what a handicap is. You've heard the expression par for the course. That's kind of an expression that means that's sort of what you're, that, that's what's sort of expected or that's what's common for something is like, oh, that's just par for the course. And what that means is that on a hole, you're, if it's a par four, it means you hit two shots to the green. You're supposed to get on the green from tee to green and then two putts. And that would be a, a par for for the hole if you go if you go get on the green and make a one putt you get a birdie which is one less than par so a course has generally most courses are par 72 which means they'll have some longer holes that'll be par five and that generally means you you, you get three shots to get to the green and two putts or a smaller hole like a par three which is you're trying to get on the green and one and then you get two putts so Anything over is a bogey, under could be, as I said, birdie or even an eagle. And that's kind of how you, you judge probably how well you play. So handicaps are kind of taken off of the par. So basically, if I were to score mostly, let's say, on a par 72, I would mostly score a 90. And I play around 90. My handicap to get me back to par might be like an 18 handicap. So you subtract my average the, the handicap from the average score, and it's supposed to get you down to par. It's roughly like that. It's not completely like that, but it really gives you an idea about how close to par you actually play on a regular basis. Did I explain that okay, Mike? I think that's good, yeah. And the, the purpose of the handicap is to allow players of different abilities to compete together. So when you take the handicap and you apply it to the score you shoot, in theory, it sort of levels the playing field. And what you're really doing then in the tournament is kind of measuring how well everybody played relative to their normal golfing ability. Like, did they have a good day? Did they play well by their standards that day? Very cool. Um, so how important is it to you to be playing on a LGBTQ inclusive team? You want to take that, Mike? Yeah, it's it's fun. It's it's welcoming. Uh, it's inclusive, and um, it's just easy. I found to join this group. Uh, honestly, I don't know of a lot of golf clubs that are not LGBTQ. Really, I had never really looked for one. Uh, when I started feeling like I wanted to play golf more socially and do it more regularly and find a group of people to play with, um, the first thing that came to my mind was to find an LGBTQ group. And, uh, you know, hunt around the internet and found Lambda links. And I've been really happy with it. You know, a lot of, a lot of ways that LGBT groups formed in the, in the seventies, eighties and nineties is because we really weren't welcome in other places. And so if you really wanted to be yourself, uh, among people that you could talk to and talk about your lives and, and be yourself, that's why we had these groups. I, I now, I think as, uh, as gay people were way more accepted. But, you know, it's, it, it, I think it's like a lot of things these days. We, we are a lot more relaxed. I guess it depends on where you live. But certainly in this area, you know, I mean, I can go out on any given day and play golf with people who are not in our group. Just go, I feel comfortable enough to go to a golf course and say, 
can you pair me up with somebody and we'll go out and play and people are generally very fairly welcoming i mean i think i haven't really ever had a really bad experience just playing with people i didn't know but it's just a comfort level of playing with other lgbt people i agree it's one of those that we're lucky right now that we're living in this age where we can kind of be a little bit more accepted a little bit more comfortable Terrific. Well, I want to thank you guys for joining us. It was really fun to chat with you and learn a little bit about Lambda Links. Um, and just to remind everybody, that's www.lambdalinks.com if anybody has any uh, questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston, a Team DC board member, for the design of our logo. Also, our intro and outro music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and our podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend so that we can all keep meeting under the bleachers. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC Vice President Laura Freyer and Team DC Board Member for Fundraising Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the hosts and the participants on Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.